If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, the fourth book of the New Testament. And the eighth chapter will actually be in verses, uh, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Um, This will be kind of a one sermon within our series through the Gospel of John, and then we will be out of John for three weeks and Lord willing back in John at the beginning of August. But it fits in some ways because this is a bit of an excursus as one of the commentaries that I was reading called these verses. As you turn there to John chapter 8, one of the first things that you are likely to notice is that John 7, 53 through John 8, 11 are either marked off with brackets or possibly, depending on what version you have, placed in a, in a footnote in your Bible. If you have a, a King James translation, it's probably, there probably is no marking that sets it off in any way, and we could talk about why that is if you're interested uh, after the service. But most of the modern translations are going to have this passage bracketed off or asterisked in some way. My ESV translation provides this information regarding those brackets. This is what it says. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Others add the passage here after 736 or 2125 or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. Interesting, isn't it? Or maybe unsettling. (laughs) Because when we come to the scriptures, whether here on a Sunday or in our own personal reading, we come with a confidence and an assurance that what we are reading is God's word that has been handed down to us throughout the ages. So what do we do with this? Well, here's what we don't do. We don't ignore it. Therefore, I think it's going to be best to divide our study of this passage into two parts. First, I think we need to understand why this note is found here in all of the modern translations, which is going to require a discussion of what scholars call textual criticism. And second, having walked through that discussion, we're going to look at the message of the text itself. So, a discussion of textual criticism probably sounds boring and academic, Uh, But my hope is that it will actually serve to fill us with a renewed and maybe even a deeper confidence in the authority and the accuracy of the scriptures that we have. In other words, in showing that this passage was not originally in John's gospel, I believe that our confidence in the reliability of the scriptures will not decrease, but increase. And not only that, but this discussion could lead us into thanksgiving and to praise for what God has done in preserving his word for us through faithful men and women and through the leading of his spirit. And so first, let's begin this discussion of the text of scripture by talking about the origins of our Bible. The origins of our Bible. In other words, where exactly does our Bible come from? Now, one foundational answer to that question is that it comes from God. It it is The origins of the Bible are divine. We read earlier, uh, Mark did, not me, even though I tried to steal that scripture reading from him. Uh, We read earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, in the clearest description of divine inspiration of human authors that I think is in the scriptures, we read that men spoke from God as they were carried along by 
the Holy Spirit. It's the imagery of a ship's sails being filled with wind and carried along. That is how the men of old wrote the scriptures. They were inspired by God. The scriptures are inspired by God, but they were written through the hands of a human author as they were led by the Holy Spirit. And yet also, how the other question, though, is how did, how did this actually come to be in our hands? How did you get a Bible? How, how do I have an actual physical Bible? So with regard to these physical pages of Scripture, what we don't have is we don't have the first copies of the texts that were written by Moses or by John or by Paul. What those are called, they're called autographs or original autographs, and no autograph of any book of the Bible has survived the test of history. We don't know what Paul's handwriting looked like because we don't have the original letters. Instead, what we have are a collection of manuscripts from throughout the centuries that are copies of those original autographs. With regard to the the New Testament, these manuscripts are classified in three ways. They're classified as papyri, unseals, and minuscules. I actually want to show you some pictures of these so you can get a feel for what they they look like. So the papyri, this is a a papyri. It's written on, you can guess probably, papyrus. It was written on papyrus, um, and they can contain a few verses or multiple books of the Bible. Obviously, it looks pretty fragile, right? Papyrus was not made to last for a long period of time. Um, Unseals look more like this. That looks more like a a book, doesn't it? Sometimes these are written on papyrus, but sometimes they were written more on on the the hide of an animal. Um, And they're called unseals because of the type of writing that's there. If you look really close, it looks like it's all caps, and that's essentially what it is. It's Greek all caps. And so these would contain, again, portions of books, but there are unseals that contain the entire New Testament written just like this. This is a minuscule. Uh, Minuscules are called such because they're written in lowercase, more like cursive is the, the writing that's going on there. And again, it could be one book, could be one page, it could be the entire New Testament that can that these minuscules contain. The papyri are the oldest witnesses to the scriptures, and the oldest of them all is this one right here. It's called P52. (laughs) P52. This is the, if you look, obviously, it's a mirror image, and that's the front and the back of this papyrus. It's about the size of a business card, and it contains a few verses from John 18. What's amazing about this is that it's dated to between 125 and 175 AD. If John's gospel is the latest gospel, the the one that was written the late test by John, we could think that it was written maybe in 70s, 80s, even the 90s AD, which would mean that this copy of John's gospel is only 50 to 100 years after John originally wrote that gospel. Now, obviously, as we look at these, we find that each of these manuscripts were handwritten. Since the printing press wasn't invented until around 1436, handwritten copies of the scriptures were the only way to reproduce the Bible for nearly 1,500 years. Now, if you've ever tried to copy something word for word by hand, then you know that as hard as you try, mistakes are inevitable. 
Uh, things could be accidentally added or, or taken away. And while scribes were extremely careful and highly respectful of the scriptures, there were even times where a scribe would make a pur- purposeful addition or subtraction to a text. You might think about the game telephone, where someone whispers a sentence to one person, and then that person whispers that sentence to another person, and, and so on. And in the process, the sentence gets jumbled. Now, that's actually a really terrible illustration uh, because the care that was taken by those that were copying the scriptures was much greater and more exact than what we have in a game of telephone. But what it illustrates is the fact that there are differences between the copies of the scriptures, what are called textual variants. And the work of this, this science, we could call it, of textual criticism is therefore to take all of the manuscripts that we have, to take them together and to compare them with one another and then seek to determine the wording that is closest to the original text with the goal of getting as close to the original autograph as possible. And of course, the final result is a New Testament that is in the Greek language. And that's what this simple illustration represents. We just take all of these manuscripts and you're seeking to to finally come to a final product, which is a Greek manuscript, and then it is that Greek text that is translated into the various languages for the church worldwide to read. The process for gathering and for comparing manuscripts is actually the same for any ancient writing. But what's unique about the Bible and unique about the New Testament in particular is just how many manuscripts there are and how close to the original date of writing these manuscripts are. There are some ancient writings that have very few copies to work from. Uh, For instance, scholars have reconstructed the writings of Plato. You've heard of Plato. And they've reconstructed the writings. You know how many manuscripts of Plato's original writing they have? They don't have the autograph either, but you know how many manuscripts they have? Seven. Seven manuscripts, and the earliest that exists is from 1,200 years after Plato wrote. 1,200 years later, they have seven manuscripts manuscripts. The Homer wrote the Iliad, and he, his, his um, manuscript fares better than anyone else. Um, there's around 1,700 manuscripts, 1,700 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, and the earliest dates to about 500 years after Homer first penned his words. But what about the New Testament? How many are we working with? We're not just working with three, right? Do you know how many we're working with? There's roughly 5,800 manuscripts in existence of the New Testament. And the earliest one that we looked at dates to less than 100 years from the writing of the original. The number of manuscripts and their closeness in date to the writing of the original autographs is utterly unique in all ancient writings. Now, while such a massive number of manuscripts is a blessing, you know what it means? It means that there's lots of differences that are present. However, the majority of those differences have to do with spelling or grammar. So in, in other words, it's easy to discern the, to discern the mistakes from the correct wording or, or spelling. Daniel Wallace, a scholar, has estimated that once you remove all of these smaller variants, the manuscripts are 98% in agreement with one another. A lot better than telephone, isn't it? And of the remaining differences, 
None of them threatens any of the core doctrines of our faith. This is what F.F. Bruce writes, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. My hope here is that you see that we can have confidence in the scriptures that we study. That through the work as well as the blood of those who came before us, God's word has been preserved for us. Now to bring this back to John 8, because that's where we're supposed to be, right? Let's bring this back to John 8. We find that John 7, 5, 7.53 to 8.11 are not found in the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts that we have. Dia Carson says, says it this way. These verses are present in most of the medieval Greek minuscule manuscripts, but they are absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us. And the early church fathers omit this narrative in commenting on John. So as the early church fathers are telling us about John's gospel, in commenting on John, they pass immediately from 752 to 812. No Eastern father cites the passage before the 10th century. And Leon Morris, another commentator, writes this, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. There you go. So having seen the origins of the Bible that we hold in our hands, let's consider this, the uniqueness of this situation, okay? The uniqueness of this particular situation in John chapter 8. Uh, we've partly seen this in the fact that the majority of the differences that are found between manuscripts are on the level of spelling and, and grammar, not whether or not an entire paragraph was in the original writings of the Bible. And I think the only other passage that would prompt me to speak explicitly about textual criticism is the extended ending of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 16. There's a few other added phrases or sentences that are found throughout the New Testament, but John 8 and Mark 16 are certainly the longest additions that we find. But both of these are obviously not original to the writings of John or of Mark. It's not even really disputed for the most part. And if they weren't printed here in our Bibles, then I wouldn't even need to address the situation. But we get to, and so notice finally the power of honesty. This is what struck me, is the power of honesty. There's a temptation, just in life in general, to never show weakness. <laughs> to never deny our shortcomings uh, about ourselves or even about what we believe. From an early age, we learn to present ourselves as the best and the most socially acceptable versions of ourselves. It ranges from covering up our pimples to hiding any hint of failure in our lives. And part of this is so that we can be perceived as strong. And I wonder if we transfer that to our faith, assuming that any apparent weakness or uncertainty or, or, or difficulty undercuts our entire belief system. The problem is if we make perfection or absolute certainty the standard for accepting the authority and the authenticity of the scriptures, we're either gonna to have to reject the Bible as completely untrustworthy, or we'll have to live in denial about the areas of uncertainty and mystery, not only in the manuscripts of the Bible, but in our faith as a whole. Some people go this later route. They double down on the perfection of the Bible. They even claim that a specific translation has no error. 
I've been in the church since before I could walk, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and in that time, I've been given some very poor and oversimplistic explanations about difficult topics by well-meaning people. I think people assumed that if they said, we don't know, or we're not sure, that it would have made my faith weaker somehow. But as I've continued to study this faith of ours, as I've looked at the scriptures that, that God's given to us, I've found that the explanations for th some things are much more complicated and nuanced, and sometimes a solid explanation just doesn't really exist. And this realization has actually made my faith stronger. I, I think that could be because I don't feel like I have to hold to a certain way of thinking, even when it goes against a, some of my logic, or something that's not clearly spelled out in the scriptures. There's, there's room for mystery in this thing that we call Christianity. And mystery doesn't eliminate truth. It actually makes the bedrock truths of our faith even more precious and even more certain. When we face these difficult aspects of our faith and we look for honest answers to the questions that we have, it's often the case that our realism about these things strengthens our faith. I'll tell you this, there was a, a past version of me that would have been really troubled by the brackets around John 8. And I probably would have tried to explain that there's no way that they're not authentic to John's gospel, and I probably would have had nasty things to say about people who said that they were not part of John's original writings. But now as I stand here, I can say, John probably didn't write these verses. I'm pretty certain John didn't write these verses. And I can also say that that fact does nothing to undermine my confidence and firm belief that God has preserved his word for us and that we have it right here. And that the Bible that we study each Sunday has been preserved by the spirit of God and contains everything that we need to know about God and about his plan to redeem his people and his word. I have full confidence in the scriptures, even in light of the fact that I have full confidence that John didn't write these verses. And so Peter says, rightly, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. If you go back and look at that passage in 2 Peter 1, I love it because Peter says, we were on the mountain and we saw his glory. He's speaking of the transfiguration. He says, we looked at Jesus with our visible eyes. And then he comes here and says, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, speaking of the scriptures to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, in this discussion, one question that we've not answered is, if it's so clear that John didn't write these verses, then why are they here? <laughs> why are they put, it, put into our, our Bibles? I don't have... I don't really know for sure, but I think that one explanation could be that this historical account, it, it rings true. It, it is something that likely truly happened during the ministry of Jesus. Now, did John write it? No, I don't think so. Some people think that, that Luke may have written it, but many scholars say that this event that we read about is very, very likely a true account. Now, even if it actually did happen though, does this account here that we find these words, does it have the same authority as the rest of scripture? 
I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I listened to some people who are very confident and said this is apostolic and it is inspired and is on par with everything else that we read in the scriptures. I think it could be. There's others that say that this definitely happened, but it's not of equal weight with the rest of Scripture, and that could be as well. And because of that uncertainty, because I'm not a textual critic, (laughs) uh, I think I I would be hesitant to press all of the details of this passage, but I'm also reticent to just skip it all together because I think there's deep truth here. So with the time we have left, we're going to find the core truth of this passage that I think rings true here because of the truth that we find elsewhere in the scriptures. In many ways, this passage asks asks us to consider how we deal with the sin of others. What is our attitude towards and response to others when we discover their sin? And I believe that this account teaches us that to confront the sin of others with the heart of Jesus, we must be filled with grace and truth. That's our big idea for today, to confront the sin of others with the heart of Jesus. We must be filled with grace and truth. Each of us, whether we're in our homes or in our workplaces, here in church, or out in the world, we are all faced with the reality of sinful people. And as those who bear the name of Jesus, we often must respond to the sin and the sinners that we rub shoulders with. So how should we do that? How do we deal with the sin of our siblings, the sin of our children, the sin of our parents, the sin of our friends and our coworkers, the sin of complete strangers and people that we've never met? This passage teaches us that to confront the sin of others with the heart of Jesus, we must be filled with grace and truth. Look with me at John chapter 7, beginning in verse 33. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them, And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
to confront the sin of others with the heart of Jesus, we must be filled with grace and truth. Chapter 7, verse 53, as well as those first two verses of chapter 8, serve to connect the narrative to the previous section, but the story itself begins in verse 3. And as we look at that story, notice first the false, the false virtue of religious hypocrisy. The false virtue of religious hypocrisy. We're told that the scribes and the Pharisees, familiar characters to us now, brought a woman to Jesus. And as he was teaching, if you can imagine, he's teaching, and as he's teaching, they bring this woman and they place her right in the midst of the crowd. The scribes and the Pharisees then explain why she had been brought to Jesus. It was because she had been caught in the act of adultery. And they go on to say that the law required that she be stoned to death because of her sin, capital punishment. And so they want to know what Jesus thought should thought they should do about this situation. Now, as we read this on the surface, we might think that these men were deeply concerned about sin and holiness and obedience to the law. But in fact, there are just too many aspects of this passage that tell us the exact opposite, that reveal the false virtue of their religious hypocrisy. Let me point a few of them out to you. First, where is the man? Where is the man? Adultery is not a sin that can be committed alone. And, and if they caught this woman in the act of adultery, then why did they not bring the man who had also been caught in the act? I don't know. Maybe he was a friend of theirs. Maybe they just walked in the spirit of the day that looked down on women as second-class citizens. We might even see here the prejudice that has plagued many cultures, including our own. The kind that places the blame for sin, sexual sin in particular, primarily at the feet of women, dismissing the role of men. The kind that says boys will be boys while holding women to a different standard, when the reality is that men more often are the engine behind sexual sin than women. But if we're truly concerned about sin, we're truly concerned about holiness, then we are concerned about all sin, regardless of who commits it. We won't allow our prejudices or our agendas to, to permit us to cover up some sin while exposing others. We won't allow ourselves to dismiss the sin of people who look like us while piling on the sins of those who are different from us. Well, second, we, we, we can tell the hypocrisy here as we consider, it, 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 as we look at these men, because we can ask if this is what the law really says, this issue of stoning. Uh, depending on the status of this woman, whether she was betrothed or married or, or otherwise, different punishments were to be meted out. The death penalty was required, though it was not always to be carried out through stoning, and it was to be carried out for both parties. So they may be twisting this situation so as to force Jesus into some sort of extreme response. And this leads to a third evidence that these men were not genuinely concerned about sin and holiness and the keeping of the law. And it's found in the fact that verse 6 tells us exactly what their motive was. They did it to test Jesus. They're not trying to uphold righteousness. They're trying to trap Jesus so that they can accuse him and silence him, and thereby free their own consciences and keep their present power. 
and they're not the last ones to make such an attempt. Up until this day, individuals seek to create traps for Jesus or for Christianity in general as a means of discrediting him or it. They're not seeking to engage with the truth, just trying to twist it to justify themselves or to affirm their beliefs or lack thereof. And this is a good trap. This is a really good trap that they've laid. If Jesus says, no, we shouldn't stone her, then they're going to accuse him of not obeying the law of Moses. But if he says, yes, we most definitely should stone her, then his reputation as a man of the people, as a man of, of compassion and mercy would be tarnished. And not only that, but he would be going against the Roman authorities because they forbade the Jewish people from enacting capital punishment. It's a good trap. So what's Jesus going to do? He's going to draw on the dirt. <laughs> That's what it says here. They ask him this hard question, and he stoops down, and he starts to write in the dirt. And what did he write? We have no idea. <laughs> the text gives no indication about what he wrote. Of course, that has not kept people from guessing, and we'll make some guesses in a moment. <laughs> but notice this, that as he wrote, they continued to question him until he stood up and said, okay, the one who is without sin should be the one who casts the first stone. And then he stoops back down and keeps writing. We might wonder, is Jesus teaching that only those who are without sin can confront the sin of, other, confront the sin of others? I, that can't be the case. If it is, then none of us can lovingly seek to correct others. What Jesus seems to be asking for, though, is integrity in these accusers. We might wonder about them. We might wonder if they themselves were adulterers. Or had they set a trap for this woman? Had they, did they know this was going on and they set her up so that she could be a foil for their plan? Were their hearts pure in this accusation seems to be what Jesus is getting at. And are our hearts pure when we confront the sin of others? Or do we have ulterior motives? Here's where we might take a guess or two at what Jesus wrote in the dirt, just for fun. <laughs> maybe, maybe he wrote the name of their friend, the guy who had been the other party in the adultery that they didn't bring along with the woman. Maybe, maybe he wrote the names of those whom they had committed adultery with. Or maybe a list of sins that they were guilty of that the law required the death penalty for. Maybe he wrote an Old Testament scripture that would help them to see that their sin was just as grievous and just as ugly as this woman's sin. Whatever he wrote, his words and his writings were enough to convict these, men's, these men and to cause them to walk away. Not enough to move them to repentance, but enough to just move them on. Again, they reveal the false virtue of religious hypocrisy. And they call us to true virtue, the true virtue of gracious humility. That's the opposite of what these guys were. And it's what we're called to. It's, we're called to gracious humility, the kind of gracious humility that sees our sin first and then seeks to confront the sin of others, not for our own personal agendas or for our own pride, but for their good and for God's glory. 
not with ulterior motives, but with a focus on God's heart. It's a humility that, that would only make a private sin public when absolutely necessary. How shameful that they brought this woman in front of these strangers, in front of this crowd, instead of dealing with it in private. Love, love covers over a multitude of sins and it seeks to gently confront and restore others, not to publicly shame them for their own personal gain. From the false virtue of religious hypocrisy, we now see the grace and truth of Jesus and his gospel. The grace and truth of Jesus and his gospel. As we read the narrative, the the image that's now before us is of Jesus and the woman alone. It would seem possibly that not only did the scribes and the Pharisees leave, but also maybe all of those people who had been listening to Jesus' teaching left. Or, Or maybe they're still in the vicinity, but the focus is no longer on them. The focus is on Jesus and this woman. And Jesus looked up from whatever it was that he was writing or or drawing there in the dirt, and he noticed that all of those guys who had come with such conviction about her sin had left. What had seemed to, to consume them so much that they were willing to kill another human being because of it was now something that they simply walked away from. Can you imagine what this woman was feeling Her sin has just been exposed, not just to her family and her friends, but these religious leaders have dragged her out and placed her in front of complete strangers. Her sin's been exposed to an entire city in the middle of a feast. Imagine the thing that you're most ashamed of and now it's displayed for the world to see. Your secret sin exposed. She not only felt shame, but she also felt fear. What did these guys want to do? They wanted to kill her. Maybe she thought she was going to die right there in that moment, stoned by this self-righteous mob. Maybe she wanted to die. And in the midst of all that shame and all that fear, Jesus stands up looks at her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here that can condemn you anymore? And she responds and says, no one, Lord. But her response is inaccurate, isn't it? Because the one that she had just called Lord was the one who could accuse her. In one way, he already had. He, he had given those present permission to stone her, and thereby he had acknowledged her, her guilt. And he was not only the one who could accuse her, but he was also the only one who could rightly pick up a, throw, a stone of judgment and throw it at her. Remember what Jesus said, who's supposed to cast the first stone? The one among them without sin. And who is that? It's Jesus. So in a sense, all of her hypocritical accusers and her unjust executioners had left, but the one who could judge her, 
with perfect justice, the one who could condemn her with complete righteousness was standing right in front of her. And she could have been more ashamed and more fearful than she had been yet. And yet, we read this knowing who Jesus is. And therefore, we know that grace is about to break through all of these dark clouds. The response of Jesus is beautiful, isn't it? But it's not one without complication. Jesus tells the woman, neither do I condemn you. And as we read that, we might wonder, is Jesus dismissing her sin? Is, is he saying, ah, no big deal. I, they were blowing things out of proportion, you know? Is he sweeping her, her sin under the rug? Or is he offering her forgiveness that's rooted in the future work of the cross? The only way that Jesus could not condemn her and remain righteous was if he knew that he would be condemned for her. That he, the one without sin, would take her sin upon himself. And not only her sin, but he would take her stoning. He would take her death sentence. Jesus does not condemn her here because he would be condemned. He does not judge her with stones here because he would be killed for her and raised for her justification. As we think about grace and truth, we know that the cross is the place where grace and truth meet, where sin is rightly punished and where forgiveness is freely offered. And we find that if we're going to confront sin, the sin in our own lives, the sin in the lives of those around us, if we're going to do that, then we need to do it like Jesus did. And we have to go to the cross first. We have to know that our righteousness is not our own, and therefore we can have no pride or sense of, of superiority toward others who are in sin. And we must confront sin with the hope of forgiveness, not the hope of condemnation. In my mind's eye, these men bring this woman, rubbing their hands together. They want to stone her. But when we come to people and confront their sin, our desire is to see people forgiven, to see relationships restored. We come with the hope of restoration, not the hope of excommunication. We can take sin seriously, realizing that it cost Jesus his life, but we can also come to people graciously, knowing that as we have been forgiven, so too they can be forgiven by Christ, and we can forgive them. We come to people with grace and truth. And the truth of Jesus also recognizes that for someone to truly repent means that they will also turn from that sin. The kind of forgiveness Jesus offers and the nature of the faith that receives it both result in, in a changed life. And so Jesus holds out forgiveness to this woman, but then what does he do? He tells her to sin no more. Such a shunning of sin was not what would save her, but rather it was an evidence that a true work of God had occurred in her life. There's a lot of irony in this story when you think about it. These men brought this woman to Jesus with the goal of condemning both her and Jesus. But what is the result? 
Is the woman condemned? No, she's forgiven. And is Jesus condemned? No, he's exalted and shown to be great. Who ends up being condemned? They do. The accusers who brought her. When we approach people with a lack of honesty and a lack of humility, with the false virtue of hypocrisy, while we may end up pointing out legitimate sins in their lives, we're going to end up condemning ourselves. And we're going to miss the opportunity to receive the grace that they and we are offered by Jesus. But if we come to people, rightly, confronting people with sin, but doing it in the spirit of Jesus with grace and truth, then we have the hope of forgiveness, both for them and maybe too for us. And we have the privilege of exalting Jesus as the one who was condemned for us. The one who condemned sin itself through his death so that he can offer us life and light when we repent and believe. Let's take a moment of silence and we'll reflect on God's word and then I will pray. Father, we confess that we are this woman that our sin hangs over us and we rightly deserve your judgment. And so we thank you for Christ who has taken our judgment upon himself so that he can offer us forgiveness, forgiveness and call us to sin no more. Lord, we also confess that we are the scribes and we are the Pharisees. We come with self-righteous judgment on people. We lack the grace and the truth that we find in this passage. Lord, would you teach us how to approach people with the beauty of the gospel, to know that because we are forgiven, we can come to people and confront them with sin, but also give them the hope of the gospel, that they can be forgiven, that they can be given the strength to sin no more. Thank you, Jesus, for being a Savior who comes with so much compassion. Forgive us for lacking compassion so often, for being so quick to judge. Help us to take sin seriously, but help us to see how amazing your grace is. Amen.